me first tell you about Frank. Uh, Frank is a businessman, a father, a husband, and a churchgoer, probably in that order. Frank's wife, Carol, is miserable. His kids are angry. His work's going okay, but it leaves him empty. Frank is very critical of his wife, very critical of his kids. Frank, uh, Frank's wife, Carol, tries to talk to him sometimes about his feelings, but it only irritates him. Frank is a very unhappy man, but he would never admit that even to himself. Uh, he would never be willing to even ask the question about happiness, never willing to look inside, because there's something in there that scares him. Deep down, he knows that something isn't right. But as long as he can blame his lack of joy on his nagging wife or his rebellious kids or the pressure at work, he doesn't really have to look. Then the next story is about Shirley. Shirley is married to a very supportive Christian man. She has three children whom she loves more than her own life, which isn't all that much because she doesn't love her own life all that much. Uh, Shirley loves the Lord, and she has moments of religious peace. But when it comes to her children, she's unable really to set boundaries, to really say no. Shirley's children run her life and run her ragged. When they treat her with disrespect, she somehow feels it's her fault. When they fail at something, she attributes it to her lack of attention, her lack of affirmation. Recently, Shirley's been experiencing something that makes her all the more sure that the problem is her. She's begun to resent her children, and to her horror, she is actually hating them at times. The next story is Allison. Allison was a, uh, a girl in the youth group when I was youth pastor. She's a very pretty girl, but extremely conservative in the way she dressed. Her waist-length hair was always brushed in her braid. Her glasses were attractive, but obviously very conservative, marginally fashionable. Allison was really involved with the youth group. But when it came to social functions, she'd uh, really hold back, uh, if she even came at all. She was very shy, but very kind and very polite. Allison uh, seemed to really love the Lord. When it came to Bible study time, it's obvious she'd been thinking about things. She had done the study. She'd memorized the verses she uh, had all the answers. She obviously was thinking about the Lord all the time. But Allison struggled at school, uh, more and more unable to concentrate, more and more unable to succeed. When she graduated from high school, she went on to college and realized there that Christianity really didn't work for her. And so she evolved away from church and churchy things. Finally, let me tell you about Marty, Mad Marty. First quarter, I went to the University of California down at Santa Barbara. I lived on a dorm floor for misfits. I had been uh, studying out of the country, came back just before classes were to start, and hadn't given any attention to where I would live. So I went to the student housing office and asked them if they had a place I could stay. They were rather incredulous that I had not already made arrangements, but they told me they had a floor that was made up of people who had trouble in other dorms, and they were all stuck on this one floor. And so I was one of only three freshmen on the whole floor. And one of the guys that lived on this floor was Marty, uh, Mad Marty. 
Marty was a 22-year-old junior. He was very short, probably about five foot five, full of energy and absolutely crazy. He earned his name the first week of school. We were all sitting around one afternoon with nothing to do, being a little bit hot and bothered. So Marty decided to liven things up. He went over and took the fire hose out of its glass case and began ambushing people with water as they came out of the elevator or poked their head out of their dorm room to see what was going on. There was one student who wasn't nearly as amused as the rest of us by this whole affair. And he threatened Marty. He told him, if you squirt me, I'm going to tell. And that was all the encouragement Marty needed. He soaked the kid. The kid disappeared down the stairs. A few minutes later, somebody shouted that the resident advisor was on his way up the stairs. So Marty panicked. He was cornered. You know, you can chase a rat and it'll run from you. But if you corner it, it's going to turn on you. And Marty was cornered, so he did the only thing he could do. He grabbed the portable fire extinguisher, and when the resident advisor was coming down the hall, Marty attacked. He chased him back down the hall, down through the stairway door, down two flights of stairs before he came back up to the floor, panting and out of breath. Marty uh, paid for his actions with a fine and with probation, but we all agreed it was well worth it. I lived with Marty for uh, the rest of that year. We moved out into an apartment, and Marty made me laugh a lot. I could give you a lot of stories of Marty. But Marty's craziness really ran deep, and it had a a very dark side. One night, when we still lived in the dorms, he came in the room I was in. He had been drinking. He walked over to the window and put his fist through it. And he turned back to me and stuck his face in my face. And he told me, he said, your God is dead. So he's never really there in the first place. Well, why all these stories? Well, there's something that each of these stories have in common. There's a, there's a force that is twisting each of these people. A thing that threatens to twist our lives as well. What I'd like to do is look at a story, a true story in Scripture that gives us the answer to this thing. Look at John chapter 19, verses 17 through 42. John 19, 17 through 42. This is John's account of Jesus' death. Now John is, an illiter- is a literary artist weaving very subtle themes all the way through his book. Themes that... Uh, emerge here in this section and, and culminate here in this section. And there are so many of these and, and with such profound meaning that really there's four or five sermons here, but I only get to give you one. So what I would like to do is just read through this passage and make just the points I can't resist making. And then back up and look at the whole thing and see what it means to us. So start with verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now listen to what John is doing with his style. Who is the subject? Who is doing the action? He carried his cross. He went out. See, the emphasis here is that Jesus is going willingly to his crucifixion. Now this idea will come up far more forcefully later on, but John starts us off with it. And another thing he does with his style right off the bat, right at the beginning, is to, uh, to make Old Testament allusions, very subtle allusions to things that were said in the Old Testament, 
to give us clues to what's really happening here. John is very specific. He says, Jesus went out. That's emphatic in the Greek. He went out. In Exodus chapter 19, or 29, in Leviticus chapter 4, in Numbers chapter 19, we're told that the sacrifice for sin had to be taken out of the gate, out of the camp, out of the city. And the writer of Hebrews interprets this for us. In chapter 13 of Hebrews, he makes the exact same point, that the sacrifice had to be taken out. And then verse 12, he says, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. See, this kind of very subtle Old Testament allusion is all the way through our passage. We'll look at a few of these. But here, right off the bat, John wants us to know, catch a little bit of glimpse of what's going on behind this story, the the meaning of Jesus' death, the sacrificial nature of what's going on here. Next verse, verse 18. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. John says, they crucified him. Boom. He just hits us with that very short, terse, simple, powerful statement. They crucified him. Now it strikes me that we don't get any of the gruesome details of death by crucifixion. We all know that's a horrible way to die. I've heard descriptions of it that turn my stomach. But see, John doesn't give us any of this Hollywood Silence of the Lamb graphic gore and and darkness. Why not? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. First of all, he wants us to hold on to the simple, objective, historic space-time fact. Jesus died. It happened. Just like you got out of bed this morning. Just like I'm standing up here. It happened. It's a fact. I think the other reason is that uh, John wants to emphasize something else in the passage. If you see, notice, the rest of the verse goes on to talk about people crucified with Jesus. In the Greek, it's, it's very redundant. One here, one there, Jesus in the middle, all of them crucified together. Again, that subtle Old Testament allusion. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 says, because he, was, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, For he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see, John is really building something here. Let's go on to the next scene. It takes place in Pilate's offices, verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. That was the language of all the people who would be coming for the Passover. All the, the, the thousands, virtually, actually millions of Jews who were coming for this celebration would walk by and read this sign. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When someone was to be executed, the Romans would write their crime on a placard. And this served two purposes. First of all, it served as a warning that this is the consequence of this crime. It served as a deterrent. 
But the other purpose, according to William Barclay, is, that it is for the benefit of the accused. See, when the person was being led to their execution, a, a Roman soldier would walk in front of them carrying this sign. And as they went through the city, people could read the sign and see what the accusation was. And if anyone had new evidence or further testimony, they could come forward at this point. This was their last opportunity. And if somebody did come forward with significant testimony, then there would be a retrial. Often the uh, soldiers would lead the accused through a, a winding route, the longest route possible to the place of execution, to give as much opportunity as possible for someone to come forward. But for our Lord, no one came forward. No one. H.A. Ironsides wrote, The light of the cross shows people for what they are. And I think in this encounter between Pilate and the chief priests, we see them starkly in this light. We see the chief priests for the blind, petty squabblers that they were. You know, the irony is enormous. Here, the Lord of the universe... The king of glory is about to die, and they're arguing over what's written on the sign. And we see them later on, and we see that same characteristic, always caught up in things that don't really matter and missing the things that really matter. And we see Pilate for the irritable, antagonistic bureaucrat that he was. Now, these priests had maneuvered him into executing an innocent man. Now, Pilate didn't care about the man. He cared only about his political hide. But it irritated him that these, these religious fanatics had so trapped him. And so he took some satisfaction in, in, in annoying them with his sign. He could have written anything. He could have written sedition or rebellion on this sign. But he wrote, King of the Jews, because he knew that would get them. And he loved it. And even though Pilate's motive was absolutely wrong, his words were absolutely Right. This is the king of the Jews, the son of David. Now the next scene is at the foot of the cross, the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. Verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. The undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast, cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Now, execution duty was a lousy detail for the Roman soldier to be assigned. And to make it a little bit less lousy, one of the perks was that they got to keep all the stuff that belonged to the victim. So they're down here Dividing it up, arguing over it, gambling for it. Paying absolutely no attention to what's happening there on the cross. You know, sometimes indifference is worse than hostility. Here are these guys dividing up the spoil. Here are all of these crowds surging by. All of them immune from what God was doing there that day. All of them immune from what God would have for them. Then John wants us to see that the selfishness of these men really accomplished God's plan. It, it fulfilled the scripture. John quotes for us Psalm 22, which is a crucifixion psalm. It, it tells us prophetically 
of all the suffering, of all that Jesus would experience on the cross. And John quotes this psalm so that we would see and understand that what was happening to Jesus and all around Jesus was not some sad, unfortunate accident, but really the fulfillment of a plan that had been on the heart of God for all time. The selfishness of these men could not thwart or inhibit or damage or distract our wise Lord's plan. In fact, he had counted on it from the very beginning. People, God knows what he is doing. The next scene is the four women, three of them named Mary. Now that is a detail you would not expect if somebody was making this story up. But that starts for us in verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This section begins with a grammatical device that ties it back into the last section. It starts with a pluperfect verb that puts the stress on the fact that these ladies had been there all along. They'd seen everything that had happened. They had watched what these soldiers were doing. William Barclay, who was an expert on the culture of these times, says that it was tradition for a Jewish mother to weave for her oldest son a a seamless undergarment to be worn underneath the rest of his clothing. It was a softer garment to be worn against the skin. This was an intimate, precious, meaningful gift from a mother to her son as he reached manhood and adulthood. Tradition has it that Mary had woven one of these for her boy, Jesus. And now we're told that she had been standing there watching these soldiers gamble for this beautiful tunic that she had so lovingly and proudly presented to Jesus one day a long time ago. And a sword pierced her heart. Jesus sees all of this, so he speaks to his mom. John draws our attention to the man on the cross. And even though he's going through enormous pain. He's going through agony that makes the physical pain insignificant in comparison. He still thinks more of others than of himself. Even though his pain was much greater than hers, he's able to hurt a little more for her because he sees what she is feeling, what she is going through. And Jesus realizes that the little things matter. They're essential. Even though he was there taking on the sins of the world, he still cared for his mother and provided for her. Because these little things aren't insignificant. These little things are really what define us. How you treat somebody when you're under pressure is not an artificial index of your true character. It is a true and accurate demonstration of what's really inside of you. And what's really inside of our Lord is obvious, is clear. His love never wavered, even through the end. 
Well, John has drawn our attention to Jesus on the cross, and he keeps the focus there. Verse 28, Later, knowing that all was now accomplished, or now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus realized that all was completed. Everything he had come to do, he had done. He'd come to bring us the word of God, the ultimate word. And everything he was, and everything he did, and everything he said, it was an expression of God. And now it was all said. And he came to pay for our sins by being the sacrifice for sins. And that was done. Actually, there was one more thing that he wanted to do in order to fulfill scripture. And so he said, I thirst. Now, this is not a direct quote of any Old Testament passage. Again, it's it's one of those subtle scriptural allusions. It's an allusion allusion to uh, two psalms, Psalms 69, which is another crucifixion psalm. And in that psalm, the psalmist is crying out to God to look at him, to care for him. He says, scorn has broken my heart. And he looks for the mercies and the comfort of God because God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. But for Jesus, there wasn't any. So filled with a thirst... Uh, I think not a physical thirst, but a more profound, deeper thirst, the spiritual thirst, the thirst in all of us for God. Jesus cries out, and they give him vinegar instead of water. They don't have anything that can satisfy that thirst. The world has nothing that can satisfy that thirst. This is confirmed in the other psalm. Psalm 42 says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It goes on to say that his tears cry out, Where is your God? See, the the agony that Jesus suffered on the cross was not the physical torture. That was great. But others have suffered worse, being skinned alive or slowly burned to death. Now, the agony that Jesus suffered beyond all agonies was that the one who had been in perfect union with the Father through all eternity, who had never experienced the the psychic trauma of being separated from God by sin, was torn away from that union by our sins. See, he absorbed, he bore the full weight of our sins, the full awfulness of the misery each one of, of, of us have felt just a little bit of as we have suffered the confusion and the fear and the condemnation and the self-contempt that come from our sins. You see, Jesus experienced the horribleness of, of what we experience, only multiplied by the number of people there have ever been and ever will be. And that was contrasted with the perfect peace that he had experienced with the Father for all time. You know, it is impossible to really describe 
the, the spiritual and psychological horror of this. Little billionth parts of this have caused people to kill themselves, have caused us to be hateful and cruel, have led us to all of the misery we have ever experienced. And Jesus bore it all. He absorbed everything that hell is. And when he had done that, he shouted out, Tetelestai, it is finished. In the other Gospels, they don't give us that word. They just said he made a great shout. See, this is not the whisper of defeat. This was the shout of victory. It is finished. And then he dismissed his spirit. The cross did not kill Jesus. The cross was just the visible sign that he was cursed for us, that he was condemned for us. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, we're told that anyone who hung on a cross or on a tree was cursed. You see, Jesus died on a cross so that we would see that he had been cursed for us. But he died because he chose to make the payment for our sins, to give up his life, to sacrifice himself. He laid his life down willingly. No one took it from him. It was his payment for our sins so that we wouldn't have to go through any of what he experienced, any of the pain of separation from God, any of the horror of being torn from our union with the Father. John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my own choice. I have authority to lay it down or to take it up. He freely chose to lay it down. You have never seen greater love. For time's sake, what I would like to do is to just read through the rest of the passage skipping over most of the rest of the, uh, the um, Old Testament quotes or, or allusions, most of which really focus on the fact, re- reinforce the fact that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb given in payment for our sins and that Jesus died in our place. He was a substitution for us. He suffered because of our iniquities. He bore our sins. But like I said, I want to just skip over most of that, make a couple of points, and then come back and make one main point before we come to our conclusion. So let me read from verse 31 through 42. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Although a man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Well, we have a contrast here between two different groups of people and their response to Jesus. One group was the Jews. When Scripture uses that term, it's referring to the religious leaders. And then the other, two members of that group, two men who were part of the religious leadership, Joseph and Nicodemus. The majority of these leaders were hypocrites. They claim to care about God, but the contradiction is obvious. Here they are being punctilious about the details of every ritual Sabbath law. Supposedly to please God, while at the same time they're doing everything they can to murder his son. You know, it's absurd. They miss the point entirely. You know, the one critical issue in life is not how well you obey all the rules. The one critical issue is how you respond to the Son of God. There is no other issue on which we will be judged. Earlier in his gospel, John said, He that believes on him is not condemned. But he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. You know, how many people pride themselves on being honest or loyal, while at the same time they reject the Son of God? The one critical issue. Nowhere in Scripture does it say someone will be condemned for being a drunk, or for being a thief, or a liar, or even a murderer, or an adulterer. But rather, we will be condemned for rejecting what Jesus Christ did to pay for all those other sins. It was for all those other sins that Jesus died. And if we, if we refuse to accept that, then we still bear the guilt of our sins, the condemnation of all of our other sins. And we'll bear that for eternity. Now the other two leaders, Joseph and Nicodemus, again, both had been part of that religious leadership but they now turned away from their old gang, from the whole of their friends, and turned back to Jesus, risking everything they had, even though he was already dead. You see, they had failed Jesus, just as everyone who loved Jesus, just as all of us do. But they turned back. You see, that's the key. All of us, at some point in our life, at many points in our lives, turn away from him. But it's essential that we turn back. Now back with me to verse 34. This is where I wanted to back up to. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Now, there's something significant going on here. John says, I saw it with my own eyes. I swear to you it's true. I give you my sworn statement, my affidavit. It's true. 
And the reason John is so urgent, uh, that, that, that he, he is stressing this so strongly, is that he wants you to believe. Because it's only as you believe, it's only as you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that you gain the benefit of what he has accomplished. But what's all this about the blood and the water coming out of Jesus' side? That seems to be critically important to John. Well, first of all, it's proof that Jesus died, and therefore my sins are paid for. But there's something more going on here. John is very much into the symbolism of the Old Testament. That's obvious through all of his writings. Let me read a passage for you in Zechariah. Just listen. Uh, Most of you would not be able to find it anyway, but... Zechariah chapter 13, verse, or chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day... A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. See, this scripture was fulfilled on that day. That God opened a fountain to cleanse us from sin and from impurity. And out of that fountain flowed blood and water. Both of them, each of them, representing the two aspects of our cleansing. Blood in Scripture always stands for the atoning sacrifice. The life of Jesus poured out in payment for our sins. And as a result of being washed in that blood, we are absolutely clean. Clean from all guilt, from all condemnation. There is no more uh, need for payment for our sins to try in any way to make up for them. Every sin, past, present, and future, is forgiven and washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. First John, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, John said, The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now that's the heart of the good news. But what's this stuff about the water? There was water coming out of his side. There's water flowing out of the fountain as well. Well, in... Scripture, water is often symbolic, especially in the book of John, for the Word of God. Jesus said earlier to His disciples, You are now clean from the washing of the Word which I have spoken to you. And Paul uses the very same metaphor in Ephesians 5. He says, Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the Word. This is a sanctifying cleansing. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you are already absolutely clean from guilt. His blood has cleansed you from condemnation. You are free from guilt and punishment for your sins. But you also have the added blessing of seeing yourself freed from behavior that destroys you. Of having your sinful behavior cleansed by the daily washing of the word. In uh, Psalm 119, David says, How will a young man cleanse his ways? 
And then he answers it in the same verse. He says, by living according to thy word. You see, God's word cleanses our behavior as we listen to it and submit to it and let it govern our lives. So out of that fountain flowed the blood to cleanse us, to free us from the consequence, the, the punishment of sin, to cleanse us from guilt and condemnation. And out of that same fountain flowed water to cleanse our behavior from the things that destroy us, that, that mess us up. Both are release for the, from the punishment of sin and our release from the power of sin were accomplished by Jesus that day on the cross. That's the work He came to finish, and it is finished. Let's get back to uh, Frank and Shirley and Allison and Marty. What does all this mean to them? What does this mean to us? You remember Frank as the guy who hid from himself by being critical of his wife and children. Frank could not experience intimacy with his wife or children because Frank had never faced his sin. The thing that was wrong deep down inside of him, the thing that scared him was guilt. Now Frank also struggled with pornography, but that was another symptom of the problem. The problem was his guilt His guilt that haunted him and frightened him. His guilt for the way he used people. His guilt for some of the decisions he had made at work. His guilt for the lousy job he was doing as a husband and a father. His guilt that Jesus died for. His guilt that Jesus absorbed with all of its fear when he hung there on the cross. And once Frank was free from that guilt... He was free to see his life changed as he listened to the Word of God and submitted himself to it. And Shirley, you remember Shirley, the woman who uh, had struggled with um, taking responsibility for her children, who had grown to even resent those children. When Shirley was 17, she had gotten pregnant and had an abortion. And the guilt from that experience always lay just under the surface. She felt it was appropriate when her her children didn't respect her. She deserved it. How could they respect a murderer? But she didn't realize that that guilt had already been paid for. It had already been atoned, and she could not atone for it herself by being the martyr at home. Jesus said, it is finished, and he meant it. All that was left for Shirley was to believe, was to accept that simple, historic fact. Jesus died, and my sins are paid for. No other pain, no other payment is necessary or desirable or even possible. And what about Allison? Allison had no big sin lurking in her past. But she was so acutely aware of each little sin, of each wrong thought, of each time she didn't love God with her whole heart. And she viewed God as an unrelenting judge, never satisfied, always wanting more. 
She felt that she didn't deserve to succeed. She didn't deserve friends. And the weight of that guilt always was constant on her shoulders. See, she felt she didn't deserve to succeed, didn't deserve friends, because she didn't realize that God was already satisfied. Jesus had already satisfied him. And that her God loved her so much that he hung there on the cross for her. And he absorbed all of her weakness, all of her inadequacy. And his outstretched arms were there to wrap around her if she would only accept it. And what about Marty? Mad Marty. Marty was an alcoholic, but again, that was uh, a symptom of his problem, not the real problem. His problem was guilt. It was guilt that drove Marty. Guilt for the way he treated people. Guilt for his past. One night, Marty came in, broken down, and in tears, with frustration, he told me, he said, I wish I could believe like you do, but I can't. And I don't know where Marty is today, but I wish he could believe too. It isn't a matter of fortitude. It isn't a matter of emotion. Nearly 2,000 years ago, on a certain day, in a specific place, Jesus died. That is a fact. And with that death, my sins were paid for. That, too, is a fact. You see, the thing that was twisting each of their lives, the thing that threatens to twist and distort and destroy our lives is guilt. It confuses us. It makes us afraid. We run from it. We try to excuse it. We try to pay for it. When all we really need to do is unload it. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Leave yours there. Be done with it. In her book, um, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert tells the story of a woman who was totally distraught about her teenage daughter. And her maid, a woman by the name of Ruby, looked at her and said, Child, Jesus has already died for the girl. There's no point in you dying too. The same thing is true of your sins. Jesus has already died for them. There's no point you dying too. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds we were healed. It is a horror that your sins caused Jesus' death. But that is nothing compared to the horror if you were to waste that death. And not allow that death to pay for your sins. To not accept that peace that he paid so dearly to purchase for you. To not allow his wounds to provide for your healing. Now don't think it's not for you. 
It's for all of us. The next verse, Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but God has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Jesus said, When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Let him draw you to himself. Leave your burdens there. Trust him and be healed. Trust him and be freed. I told you um, all of these stories about people who I know because most of us are like these people. Most of us, even if we're Christians, carry around so much of the burden that Christ died to free us from. And those of you here who have never put your faith in Jesus Christ are carrying the full weight of your sins. And it's hurting you. It's twisting you. This morning, I just want to ask each person here to lay those burdens down at the foot of the cross, to be done with them, to be freed from them, to let Him cleanse you with His blood. And then as we walk from here, let Him continue to cleanse us by the washing of His Word. But let's close in prayer. Lord, I uh, know there's just no way we can fathom the depth of your love. I really understand what you experienced for us. We know how bad we feel sometimes, how, how lousy we feel as a result of our sins. We know just the hatred that overwhelms us as a result of our sins. How hateful a feeling that is. But we can't imagine what it felt like for you to absorb that for all of us, to take that so that we don't have to anymore. Lord, we really don't see your love clearly, but even the glimpse that we catch breaks us, humbles us, makes us long to be like you. So, Lord, we want to come to honor that death, honor that payment, by laying down our burdens, by receiving the peace that you purchased. So we do that this morning. In your name, amen.